Bonjour, I'm Terence Galenter, your American friend in Paris, coming to you almost live from Café Terence in Paris's 3e arrondissement. Today and every Saturday, I will be joined by colleagues to discuss books, movies, and song. And at the finale of every broadcast, I will sing a selection from the American Songbook. I want to welcome my guest, uh, the film critic and historian, author of over 30 books, uh, David Thompson, on the line from San Francisco. Welcome, David. Well, thank you for calling. And uh, I'm kind of wondering what you've been doing. I, I might indicate among those 30 books was a biography of uh, David O. Selznick, yes. uh, Orson Welles, uh, a little sleeper that I know you and I both love called Suspects, and perhaps we can talk, talk about that before the program is over. Sure. And and the uh, the book that if uh, Gideons wanted to stay in business, they would start stuffing into hotel rooms, the biographical they would. Yeah. dictionary of film. <laughs> yeah. Certainly in, in my years as a traveling salesman, it would have done me a hell of a lot more good uh, than, the, uh, than the Bible that was stuck there on the right-hand side. I don't think in 30 years of traveling uh, to motels around the United States, I ever picked it up once. Okay. <laughs> But on the other hand, uh, during this incarceration, I've been spending an enormous amount of time, uh, once again, with the dictionary. Uh, what have you been up to? I know, I know, I don't know if you're writing something at the moment. Well, you know, the funny thing is, and I'm sort of half ashamed to say this, um, physically, in terms of routine, my life has not changed that much. Um, I tended to sit at home reading, writing, listening to music, watching movies, old movies, new ones, and I'm doing essentially the same. Um, I'm in my office. I've been in my office for most of my life, if you know what I mean. Sure. Um, what's changed is this incredible sense of order having been altered, and, and it means immediately that I keep in much closer contact with children, grandchildren, and friends than I ever did before. Not that I was a bad correspondent, but I think you just want to reach out and touch in the best way you can find, which is the telephone or email or something like that. Well, you're somewhat lucky. You have Zach and, and, and Lucy. Well, you know, it's it's this, it's a strange thing. I, I'm obviously very lucky in that Lucy, my wife, is with me. And it happens that Zachary, our son, is with us. He came back to live here uh, thinking he would come back for a fairly short time. But, but now it looks as if he may have to be here a good deal longer. But it means there are three of us, and in terms of shopping and everything, but above all in terms of having someone to talk to. Uh, it, that's an amazing plus. I think the huge change for most people is the quality of aloneness that is becoming increasingly frightening as the days go by. No, I agree. And I, I think, you know, many of us are comfortable with solitude. I always felt that I was never someone who was lonely, but very comfortable uh, with myself, but I, not everyone has that ability. And I think people, you know, really, really thirst for some sense of connection to other human beings. Totally. But equally, I would say, I, I, and I've heard anecdotally of a few things like this, I think people who've been together 
for years, married couples or just people who've been together, uh, they are now suddenly forced into a togetherness that can put quite a strain on a relationship. I, I would not be surprised if divorce figures go up uh, after this or during it. Um, so many things that we take for granted are just thrown up in the air and we have to catch the pieces coming down and make what we can of them. And it, it, it's, it's, exp it's exposing the nature of our economy. We suddenly realize that America is not that great a country, but it's exposing our society too in, in remarkable ways. And I, I think that we're, we're, we're never going to get back to the normal that really existed like, well, January of this exactly. year was a pretty normal month. <laughs> I recall our last conversation and one of your concerns was the uh, the Internet and how it was altering in a very negative way uh, the kinds of human interaction that you and I and people of our age uh, and Bent had always shared. Uh, but in some levels, it's been helpful now. Oh, it's been uh, a lifeline now, and, and you know, one one could not do without it. I don't think that alters the possibility that through electronics, through virtual reality, we were already a culture in transition, and there were many aspects of that transition that were not admirable or not pleasant and, and uh, they're now going to be co-opted into this crisis and and I don't know I think that if we come through it we are going to be a very different society and even a even a different kind of person I, I, I have no doubt it we're because we're, we're changing almost daily or yeah. hourly in, so, in some level making adjustments I know I I've been fairly Somewhat like you, uh, apart from the fact that I can't annoy people in the street as I normally did, <laughs> I, my life is somewhat like yours. I get up early. I'm, I'm now publishing five newsletters a week, so I'm writing there all the time. Yeah, I'm yeah. constantly reading. Yeah. Uh, I've now gone back uh, under this period and seen a lot of like 1931, 1932, uh, 1933 Barbara Stanwyck movies that I somehow had overlooked in the past, yeah. but uh, in many levels, uh, my life has not changed that dramatically. And of course, but, we're, we're very lucky in the respect you were talking about, because even in a crisis, you can probably stream or watch in some way so many of the films of movie history, M movies you've known about in the past, but you never got around to looking at. And now you go back to them and I find that some of them are not nearly as good as I remember and that others are better than I remember so that's a fascinating process of dealing with our cultural history and one's personal memories of a yeah, medium we, we had, that one's always loved yeah we were on the phone recently and uh, I had just finally come across uh, Le Silence de la Mer yeah. uh, Jean-Pierre Melville's extraordinary film that yeah. I had uh, I had been somewhat aware of, and I was not that familiar with Vercos's novel. Uh, talk a little bit about that film, because Melville is so well known as being like the the French film noir guy. Uh, well, I mean, uh, I think it's a masterpiece. It's the first film Melville made, 
And it is a terribly frustrated love story between a French woman and a German officer who is billeted uh, at her house during the, the war. And if you know and love Melville, as I do, and as many people do, from his gangster police films... Bob Le Flambeur, for example. Absolutely. Um, Le Silence de la Mer comes in as a great su surprise. And it's clear that as a, as a young director, he was fascinated with a quite different kind of material. I think for commercial reasons later on, he saw that he could really make money and make a career doing those police gangster films, which is fine and fair. They're very entertaining. Some very of them watchable. Are, some of them are very good indeed. But La Silence de la Mer is a great broken romantic film, and it it's a wonderful film about what it was like during the war for France to be occupied. Uh, and, um, you know... For, for decades, you could not see Le Silence de la Mer. I saw it first at the National Film Theatre in London at a Melville season when I think the print had been borrowed from France. And I think it even had, I think it had no subtitles and I think it was just with a voiceover that was uh, delivered through earphones to people in the theatre. But But now, here I am in San Francisco. You're in Paris, but in far, far afield. You can see the film, mm -hmm. and, and that technology is quite amazing. The old dream that you could sort of dial up any film that had ever been made on a home screen, it's really come to fruition, and it is perfectly timed with a crisis like the one we're in. One final thought on, on that particular Melville film, because it was released in 1949, so I'm suspecting it was probably shot in 1948. We're yeah. only looking at four years after the uh, liberation, three years after the end of the war, yeah. and uh, Jean-Paul Grumbach, his, his maiden name, if you will, an Alsatian Jew, uh, is making a film that is sympathetic to a, uh, to a German. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's that close after the period uh, and you mentioned the uh, the love affair there's a, a scene a look uh, with uh, Stefan Nicole yeah. uh, where it only their only their eyes meet for a fraction yeah. of a second yeah. it reminded me so much of the scene in remains of the day with Emma Thompson and Anthony Hopkins where you see this this love that just couldn't be expressed or maybe it also a little bit in Tavernier's film La Vie rien d'autre Yeah. There was some invisible wall that was separating two people who loved each other, but they well, were you know, incapable of communicating it. I mean, that's a marvelous commentary on it, and I, I agree with everything you're saying. But I would just add that I think it teaches us that frustrated love affairs, interrupted love affairs, impossible love affairs in the movies are, I think, a good deal more compelling Uh, and are truer expressions of desire than love affairs that turn into wrestling matches between naked bodies. Oh, yeah. 
Expo. You can't even compare the stuff that's being made today. No. But, you know, that uh, when we talk about uh, that particular Melville film, it brings to mind a, a film that you and I both love and you have a, a close personal connection to, uh, Michael Powell's film, The uh, the Life and uh, Death of Colonel Blimp. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And a film that Churchill uh, restricted from uh, being viewed because it, it showed a, a German, Anton, uh, Anton Volbrook, in a sympathetic light. And, yeah, I mean, you know, it, it is a, a movie that says... And made during uh, the war. Made during the war, uh, when, you know, so many films were deeply partisan and really pretty stupid because of that. And there, Powell and Pressburger are saying, look, don't forget that it's quite possible for an Englishman and a German to be the best friends they will ever have. And war comes along and separates them and intervenes. Again, separation is a tremendous spur to insight, I think, into the lives we lead. And, you know, going back to our situation now, I do believe that I have thought more deeply about my children, two of whom are in England, one is in Switzerland, now that I feel more radically separated from them than I did before. Because I always felt before, well, I, I could get on a plane and go see them. They could come here. Now that feeling is much more, they're much more thoroughly apart. And I think I sort of imagine their lives and their feelings and their thoughts more fully than I did before. When people are apart, there is a possibility for a kind of imaginative togetherness that's very interesting. Well, I think you know you are not in the in the spur of the moment. You're not in the battle. I mean, to me, it's somewhat like the relationship between grand grandparents and grandchildren. They're not in the war zone. You know, as a parent, you do everything you want to protect your children and and try to educate them to be able to take care of themselves. As a grandparent, it's just 100% love. There's no a yeah. kid wants to be a juggler, be a juggler. <laughs> you know. <clears throat> To be a grandparent, and I, which we both I, are, I so. think to be to be a grandchild is really one of the sweetest relationships in life. Yeah, I know absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, just to get back to once again, the last time we talked, we were discussing the state of the movie business, in which will be another conversation as to whatever's left in terms of the theaters that we frequented as children. But yeah. uh, we talked about a, an extraordinary long-form uh, German television series called Babylon Berlin, which yeah. I watched uh, in, in German, not that I speak German, a few words, um, with remarkably good English subtitles. Oh, and yeah. uh, I was blown away. It's set in Weimar in the late 20s. Mm -hmm. uh, and we don't see our first Nazi armband until 17 episodes into this 18-part uh, seasons one and two, uh, and what it what I took away was the the extraordinary impact and fear that the Germans had of of, uh, of communism. Yeah, you know, we, we, we in hindsight we tend to think that German history in that period was waiting for the Nazis and then suffering the Nazis because it was much more complicated and and. Germany comes out of the First World War in a state of disarray. And so many forces, including communism, seem 
much more likely at first to take over the country than the Nazis. Um, and this series, Babylon Berlin, which I think is deeply affected by the films Fritz Lang made in Germany in, this, in, in that same period, um, it's an incredible combination of personal story. You have half a dozen major characters who are really compelling, interesting people, beautifully written, beautifully played. But it's all against this background of a world that you know is sliding towards some bad fate. You don't know what it is because they don't know what it is yet. And one assumes that as that series goes on, you will actually get into the Nazi period and... We've had three seasons so far, uh, and I think it's... Well, no spoilers, the, but you've, you've seen season three. I haven't. Oh, yeah, yeah, no. I mean, season three, in my opinion, starts off not as well as seasons one and two. And I think there is some letdown, although it builds again towards the end of the season. Uh, but so far, I would say the climax in season two was the peak of it but you know these shows come and go they they move up and down and i trust the people behind it to continue it and do well with it which well, based on a series of novels yeah which have I've you never read, read. No, yeah i've i've, I've read I, I frankly uh, they were i hate to say that i i enjoyed the movie more i, I can yeah. see where they you got it yeah. You know, yeah. I did say it, yeah. but from a from a dramatic standpoint, it it, it hit me. Uh, it was much more powerful, yeah. much more powerful to me. Uh, on, on the other hand, I, I love the Bernie Gunther th uh, stuff that Philip Kerr had done, who unfortunately we lost too young, uh, yeah. somewhat a, a post them in in the Nazi period. What what else are you watching? I I noticed something in the L.A. Times that you seem to like this series called Ozark. Well, uh, yeah, very much. And, and, and I would just say that as a movie historian, it seems to me that things like Babylon Berlin and Ozark, which has had three seasons too, they are quite simply above and beyond anything that's being made for the movie theaters or was being made for movie theaters. Um, I've just done a piece for Sight and Sound, which will appear quite soon, which really argues that Ozark, which is about a sort of regular American family plunged into working for the Mexican drug cartel, but living in Ozark country, I think it is so much more satisfying, so richer than, say, a film like The Irishman, which I found very disappointing while still I. being while still being the film of a great director but it it seemed to me just like a rerun of old gangster movie tropes which Scorsese has done too often for his own good I think Ozark is just mind-blowing because it's about these really quite ordinary initially decent people two parents two teenage kids and you see how the pressure of money and the need to keep up with money is destroying their lives. And it's commentary on what is happening in America 
is amazing. And I urge you to see the series. I would urge anyone to see the series. It's, it is, it's obviously great television. It's a great movie. And it just goes well, you know, on as you and say, on. David, you know, it's, it's in the Ozark. You know, we expect this in New York or LA or Chicago yeah. or San Francisco. Uh, uh, this speaks volumes about what, what has happened to our society. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's very interesting that the social setting of the series is really what we would call Trump the country. Trump uh, and I don't think it addresses that directly, but you can't watch the series without reflecting on where America is at the moment and, and the extraordinary widening gulf between what you might call the coastal intelligentsia the economic elite, and the people who are living in increasingly depressed, underprivileged circumstances. One of the things about Ozark is that there are some very, very poor people in the show, as well as amazingly wealthy people. And they're sort of side by side. Julia Garner plays a piece of white trash, you would say, really. I mean, she's, she's had no education, she has no assets and no funds. She is an extraordinary character. And there she is handling enormous sums of money. Illegal money, of course. <laughs> like all of our money now. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, apropos of, uh, of Donald, uh, I, I just watched actually for the first time because I had not been able to find it before. Uh, Gregory LaCava's uh, Gabriel Over the White House with Walter oh, yeah. Houston. Yeah. And uh, 1933, I don't know exactly when it was released in 33, but, you know, at, at that point, our presidents were uh, inaugurated, I believe it was March 1st yeah. uh, and not January, January 15th. Yeah. Uh, and, and so much of what he's talking about is, is exactly what Roosevelt was about about yeah. to do. Um, yeah, it's and, a very and interesting the, period in very interesting Hollywood period. history. Yeah, Karen Morley, who was later... Who was later blacklisted? Places yeah, yeah. his secretary. Yeah. Uh, Luddy's one of the, What are you? What are you watching in, in in old films? The kind of films that we were weaned on. Well, I mean, Lucy and I sort of watch a film every night, and we've got into the habit of each one taking a turn saying, "Which old film would you really like to see again?" And usually, we can we can dial them up. So. In the last few weeks, the things that stick out, we saw Paris, Texas. Now, when that film opened, I loved it. I have to say now it's pretty hokey. It doesn't really stand up. <laughs> um, we watched last night Maurice Pielard's Anos Amour, which I think was the first film Sandri Bonaire made. And again... Loved it when it came out. It's even better now. So, you know, the, the game of testing your memory against your current experience of these films is really fascinating. And sometimes the film has so gone off that we, we turn it off. And, of course, you know, you're watching Criterion well, or whatever There is a possibility, in your case, maybe not in mine, that uh, you've grown up. Well, that is a threat to my existence. <laughs> I'm not growing, I'm not growing up. <laughs> but, that, you know, yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm in the process of rereading uh, for, re for the second time Robert Caro's 
magisterial books on oh, Lyndon yeah. Johnson. Yeah. I've read three of the four because I, I, I misplaced volume four. And now I'm rereading for the third time uh, Robert Moses's, uh, the book on Robert Moses, The Power Broker. Yeah. Well, I, I read The Power Broker when it came out in 1974. I mean, I'm a kid from Brooklyn. I was over all of those bridges and highways, and, yeah. it, and it was very, very cool. Yeah. Well, I'm reading it now, and particularly after having read the three volumes on uh, Johnson and looking at, at basically Carroll's search for understanding power, how it's, how it's uh, accumulated and how it's used, uh, it's richer. Uh, and I mean, not that I'm necessarily smarter, but I'm more experienced than there. Yeah. Many, many yeah. things that jump out at me now. But I'm also, uh, you know, talking about things that you've seen before. The richness of his writing, the, the ability to tell, uh, write thousand-page uh, films loaded with with fact and detail, and yeah. do a narrative thread that you feel you're re you know you're you're re uh, reading uh, Raymond Chandler. Uh, I so uh, agree astonishing. with you. Yeah, I so agree with you. Uh, if if someone were to say to me now, is Philip Roth the greater writer? than Caro. I think I'd rather read Caro. I think his books stand up wonderfully well. And, you know, there is a way in which great nonfiction, nonfiction that is researched as carefully as his is, it turns your imagination on even more than the fiction, I think. And, and he's, a, he's really a great writer. Well, he'd always said that he, for his thinking was that uh, history uh, is dynamic. It's exciting. Yeah. The yeah. narrative has to be exciting. You can't write yeah. dry, boring history if the history itself was uh, extraordinary. Uh, I, just, just to, I'm I sorry. just wish he was a, a younger man, young <laughs> enough to do the history of Donald Trump. Well, he's 84, 85, I and, know, the, I know. and Bob Gottlieb, <laughs> who had been your editor, uh, is about 88. So I think but, you Bob know. Gottlieb is 90. So I'm crossing my fingers every day I know, because I know. Uh, Carol had also said, you know, unlike what had the, the murder that was committed after, after the fact on William Manchester, he, no one will be allowed to write, to finish any book that he writes. Yeah. And when he dies, it'll stop right there. That'll be yeah. the end. Yeah. I, I want to, this brings me, uh, I want to talk a little bit quickly about Sonny Maida, but before I get there, talking yeah. about films that we tracked down, I remember this wonderful Canadian film, tiny, tiny film, with uh, Richard Farnsworth, The Gray Fox, oh, which yeah. I couldn't yeah. find. I saw it in New York when it came out. Um, it might have been late 70s, early 80s. Yeah. And, be, you know, before I really started to love uh, Farnsworth, yeah. and I know you were fond of him, and it's such a remarkably understated, beautiful it's a lovely human film. Human I film. agree. And yeah. I couldn't find it, but now I did. I, I found it. You see, that's the thing. I, I, for a long time in film history, there were films you simply could not see. Uh, but now, almost everything can be found if you're ingenious enough to know where to go and where to look. Right. But Amazing. Farnsworth is an extraordinary story because, as you know, he had been a cowboy. He'd been a, a, a stunt rider. Didn't he teach Monty Clift how to ride? That's right. He coached Monty Clift. Red River. Red River. <clears throat> and then very late in life, people suddenly realized that he could say a line. And, and, and he was given parts. And he became, he became an actor. Yeah. I loved him in The Natural. He had a 
Absolutely. There's a very understated quality. His eyes kind of dance yeah. at you. The oh, yeah. Mustache, he was, uh, just he a, was so skilled. And I knew him a bit. And he was a sweet man. A that was really my, my good sense. man. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It was Unfortunately, a wonderful he, well, end he was, of his life. Yeah, he was very sick and he committed suicide. But I guess maybe in the code of the West, although he was from California, um, as opposed to the, the Wild West, uh, yeah. it might have been the way to go. Uh, you know, we mentioned Bob Gottlieb, and, yeah. uh, and and we'll get back to Knopf. And, uh, you know, most of us uh, opened up our newspapers on New Year's Day with the shock of the death of Sonny Mehta. Yeah. Uh, no relation to Zubin, but they have similar <laughs> roots. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Talk a little bit about the, uh, what an important figure he is and was in the, in the world of books and uh, what his loss represents to the history of the future of publishing. Well, I think in 1987, he came from England to New York to be Bob Gottlieb's successor as the editor-in-chief. Handpicked by Gottlieb, right? Yeah, I think so. Uh, and he took over Knopf, and, and in time, Knopf, or his job, grew to be really Penguin Random House, a much larger operation. And I don't think there was an author he had who didn't feel they owed a large part of their life to him and who felt charmed by his company and deeply frustrated by his prolonged silences. <laughs> I, I knew him pretty well. And, He's a friend and of I, Harold Pinter. <laughs> I think that most people who had known him well would agree that he could be a very difficult, frustrating companion in that he loved prolonged silences. And if you asked him a question, I asked him questions years ago. I never got an answer. He died without an answer. Um, it was in his being and it was within his nature. And it was inseparable from his real charm. It was a very gracious, quiet, kind thoughtful man. He had great taste uh, as a publisher. Uh, he sort of had the reputation of being a very literary figure, but the truth was that he loved uh, pulp literature, pulp fiction. I would guess that the author of his that he was most fond of was probably James Elroy. I thought you were going to say that. <laughs> and James Elroy gave probably the best speech at Sonny's New York memorial service. It, it, was, it was a really understanding tribute to the man. And, was that, and, was that uh, filmed? Is it available? Or is it you know, I, 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 I think it is available. And, mm -hmm. and I'm, I'm, I'm sure if you asked at Random House, you should sure, find out. The event was extraordinary because I believe it was February the 19th. I might be a day off there. I think it was the 19th. Uh, and, of course, we all thought we are present at an occasion that marks the end of an era because it was clear to anyone there there were I don't know, four or 500 people there. It was clear that the death of Sonny Mater 
was going to precede enormous changes at Penguin Random House, and it was probably going to mark a turning point in the history of publishing itself. And there we were on February the 19th thinking that, and in about two weeks, it was clear that the turning point was so much greater. Uh, not that long afterwards, bookstores closed, uh, so that getting a book became much harder. Books became all the more precious, I think, and I think many discovered and rediscovered reading. But whether publishing, as it once existed, can survive this, what it will turn into, those are, I mean, those are amazing questions. And if you'd ask Sonny, I think there would have been a long pause. A long pause. <laughs> <laughs> a long pause because he doesn't have the answer. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah. Yes. Anyway, yeah. David, I, we've touched on so many subjects that certainly set the table for uh, a, a return visit. We can, we haven't even talked about the man that you consider to be the best and most important actor in the history of the cinema. Cary Grant. Cary Grant. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> There's a, a Scott Iman has a biography coming out. Uh, have you Later had a chance year, to look at I it? Think. Yeah. Yeah, the middle of the year, I think. Have you seen the galley? I know, but he he is sending one to me. But you know, when okay. things get sent these days, it's not they what it used take to be. a long time. Because <laughs> well, I've been watching Carrie. Also, I I watched the film with Ronald Coleman and Carol uh, Lombard. Uh, it, it, you know, the, his range uh, is not just that that light uh, comedy, and he but he has an ability since he was an acrobat. He's yeah. he's almost like Fred Astaire without dancing. He well, he moves true. across that. It's it's he's remarkable. He's an amazing, amazing figure, and and you know, as you sort of delve into his early career, you find films that you've never seen before, and I it's hard to find one that's really a, a dull. Uh, he was an amazing screen presence. He was an actor, but it's something more pervasive than that. Well, I think it's you know it's it's what the the, the screen does in the sense that you know Marlene yeah. Dietrich off camera apparently was not quite so beautiful. I didn't meet her, but there on screen yeah. lit by yeah. von Sternberg, she was extraordinary. Anyway, yeah. I, I can't let you off the hook without being forced to listen to a couple of bars of a song. And yeah. I, I will go back to this event that we did at the uh, Castro Theater. My God, is it 15 years ago? Uh, on the publication, yeah. I think, of the fourth edition of the Biographical Dictionary. Yeah. Uh, and a program that you put together, and I collected this, uh, the, the clips uh, called The Influence of Song on Non-Musical Films. Yeah. And uh, which was, I, I, so maybe at some point, with the way the technology is, we can redo that using film That'd clips. and. Yeah, I think I'm going to work on doing that. But yeah. as you as you know, and as uh, my girlfriend at the time, Ann Spillane, who was in, in the audience, I think we were about 600 people in that theater who paid yeah. hard hard cash to come and listen okay. to you talk. Hard the best cash. kind, yes. <laughs> uh, and as I, as I went to the microphone, I remember saying, well, David's going to speak about many songs, one of which is this one, and she predicted it, which was... You must remember this, a kiss is just a kiss, a sigh is just a sigh, the fundamental things apply as time goes by. Well, since David ate up so much of my time, I can't finish the song, but I promise 
if you come to Paris, if and when the hotels and bars reopen, oh, I, uh, I, I will hope. sing that song. David, it's always great, um, and uh, this has been wonderful. And uh, we'll uh, catch up in a couple of weeks and see what the state of the world is. Yes, uh, it it will be changed completely, you know that. (laughs) (laughs) Stay well, say hello to Zach and Lucy for me, and uh, once again, uh, thanks for your time. Well, you take care. Okay, until next time, I am Terrence Galenter. Bye-bye. Bye.